people are being dismissed. Psalm 2, if you are using one of the black Bibles that is provided, you will find today's text on page 287. 287 of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats. Psalm 2. I'd like to read this psalm aloud as you follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. And then we will ask for God's help and look at this passage. Psalm 2. God speaks. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. When He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure, have I not set my king on my holy hill of Zion? I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. Lord, help us as we consider this passage of Scripture to see God high and lifted up. May we understand and may we, as we are compelled to do so many places in Scripture, fear the Lord. We offer these things in the name of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I read some years ago, uh, just a few years back, that the city of Austin, the greater Austin metro area, so city, uh, Austin city proper and then a lot of the ra- uh, surrounding suburbs, were working toward a, a command center that controlled the traffic throughout the city. Uh, not just on the uh, just not just in the city proper, but really all throughout the through metro area, including the highways and all of these different things. And, and this command center was supposed to be a, a technology area where they could observe or they could monitor the entire traffic pattern all throughout the city. So they would be using sensors, they would be using um, cameras to look at various parts of the city. They would be able to even uh, reprogram traffic lights remotely so that like if a, if a, a certain, you know, an accident happened in one place which was going to put a greater traffic strain on the other thoroughfares, that they could, they could re-time those lights so that the traffic flow would be better. All of this was an attempt to have, have more efficiency uh, built into the system that we already have in place. And they're, 
there, I, I, as my understanding last I heard, they're working towards this so that you could be, you know, on your commute to work, on your way to work, and, and an accident happens, and you know how Google Maps will figure out that there's a traffic delay one way, and it'll, it'll advise you to take a different route. So they'll, they'll, all those traffic lights would be, uh, be, would be reprogrammed, would be reoriented for a heavier traffic pattern on that other thoroughfare as traffic gets rerouted around the city. You know, we, we get in our cars and, and we go somewhere. We don't think about, you know, what is, what's going on with those lights and, and who's watching on the traffic cameras. And, and we may not even realize that there are, there are people, there are computers, there are systems in control that are orchestrating your commute to work. But you and I are just, you know, fat and happy just sitting in our cars, you know, just driving down, listening to, you know, jamming our tunes and, and make, not realizing that all of this is this magnificent orchestrated thing that is supposed to be getting us to work close to on time. Now, it's an imperfect system, but, but it does illustrate for the fact that a lot of times we kind of drive through life that way. We kind of go through life not really thinking about the big picture, not really thinking about the grand scheme, and and not really thinking about who is ultimately in control. This psalm reminds us that there is someone who is in control of all things in the universe. His systems are not flawed and weak and based on technology, it is a perfect control. And even though we might be kind of in our, our car of life, cruising along, not thinking about all of this, there is one who controls. This passage further teach us, teaches us that man is rebellious, but man's rebellion does not thwart the control of God. Man's rebellion does not thwart the control of God. This is a rich, rich passage of Scripture here in Psalm 2. I just want to kind of give you some highlights as we jump into this. Some months back, we looked at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and 2, coupled together, really serve as an introduction for the entire Psalter. You remember Psalm 1, the people in Psalm 1 that are blessed are those who delight in God. Psalm 2 tells us about those who defy God. Psalm 2 is what is referred to as a messianic psalm. You may have heard that term before. A messianic psalm is simply one that is is referenced in the New Testament. It is quoted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus, Messiah. In fact, not only is Psalm 2 referred to in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, but it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Last week we looked at Acts 4, which is one of the examples of where it is quoted by the early church in reference to Christ. And what we learn from the first half of it is that man's rebellion does not thwart the control of God. And I say the first half because as I dug deeper and deeper into this passage, it began to to dawn on me that we might not get it done in one sermon. So, uh, we will see how far we make it, but I suspect we're probably only going to make it through the first half. And the next week we'll come, and we'll pick up on the second half 
of the psalm. From this first half, we realize that man's rebellion does not thwart the control of God, and that's really where it starts. It starts with, with man's rebellion that we see in verses 1 through 3. Notice the text of Scripture with me, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations... Now, let me talk to you for a moment about that word nations. If you use um, various translations of Scripture... Um, you, you might observe that this word comes across very differently in different translations. If you study this word out and it's translated throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that there are very different translations. And you may scratch your head and say, why is it translated heathen in some translations and nations in others? And even in some other translations, you see it appear Gentiles. The reason for that is very sim- simple that in the Jewish mind, those are all synonyms, and they, there was only one word necessary. Because in the Jewish mind, there was us, Jews, and everybody else. Right? We are God's chosen people. There's us, and there's everybody else. And so you can see then why the, the term Gentiles really is the term nations, but it really refers to the the pagan nations, the heathen nations. And so Gentiles equals heathens equals nations. They're all the same in in Hebrew vocabulary. So any of those three are legitimate. Why do the nations rage, if you're using the New King James, these these nations of the world, these nations who, who do not serve God, are not God's people. Why do they rage? Now, that's an interesting word as well, because the the picture is actually used of a wild animal, a stubborn animal that is raging against the restraints. But It's trying to break those cords. It is trying to resist those restraints. It is is fighting. It is used of of a bull whose nostrils are flaring as it tries to pull against and kick against the restraints. But you'll notice that the psalmist described those attempts as futile. Notice the next phrase there in verse 1. They plot a vain thing or an empty thing. It's futile. Their struggle against the restraints of God are ultimately come to nothing. They're vain, they're futile, they're empty. Because only true freedom comes in submitting to God and doing His will. So there's this rhetorical question that opens the psalm. Why do you consider, why when considering all that His God has done for the nations, the mercy that He has shown for the nations... How can they rebel against him? Why do these rulers rage like an animal trying to resist restraint? It's futile. It's foolish. We have at our house a black German shepherd. Some of you have met Jade. German shepherds have a bit of a stubborn streak. They kind of have a mind of their bit, a bit ornery. Now, they're very protective, which is why we have a German shepherd. But sometimes you have to remind them 
that they are not the alpha. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like uh, pack animals have this like this pecking order, this system of governance that someone is the alpha. Well, in our house, I happen to be the alpha. And in fact, Jade responds differently to me than she does anyone else in the house. But sometimes she just wants to test that and make sure that I'm still the alpha and that she cannot assert dominance over me. At which point I have been known to look at her and say, you stupid dog. I am stronger than you. I am smarter than you. And I have opposable digits, right? And sometimes we just have to do little things to remind her. I mean, if she gets really bad, I'll just wrestle her to the ground and pin her down and growl in her face. It's a great ritual that we like to do at our house with our animals, right? When we were training her, and still to some extent, you put her on a leash. And what does she do? She bites at that leash. Now, do you really think dog that you are going to win that battle you're not but this is a raging animal have you ever watched a a bull rider and you've watched uh that that bull that's caged in and the and the cowboy is on the back and he's tied in and he's ready to go and that thing is just thrashing around and kicking and just raring to go okay this is the image when, when the psalmist says, why do the heathen, the kings, the nations, why do they rage? That's the word he's using. It's like a stupid animal that is angry and fussing and thrashing and resisting restraint. But it's ultimately futile. Notice verse 2. The psalmist focuses in particularly on the leaders of the nation. The kings of the earth set themselves. That phrase, set themselves, it means get ready for war. These words that the psalmist is using have the ring of armor as armies clamor to prepare to do battle against the Almighty. Can you imagine? They are setting themselves, they are, they are putting their armies in array so that they can do battle against the almighty creator. Now remember that in ancient times, rulers, kings, were considered gods, right? The Egyptian pharaohs were considered gods. Asian emperors, both Chinese and Japanese, were deity. Roman Caesars were gods. The Incan empires, the Dalai Lamas, even into modern times, there are nations that view their rulers as divine, as supreme. Even to this very day, South Korea observes that their ruler is a, a deity. North Korea? South Korea. Sorry, my mistake. North Korea. You see, the essential conflict here is over who ultimately gets to rule. Who gets to be God? 
and these foolish nations, these foolish rulers, dare to take up arms against the Almighty. Furthermore, they confederate together, thinking that they can somehow, with strength of numbers, overcome the Almighty. Look at the second part of verse 2. The rulers take counsel. They, they conspire together, literally. Now, I'm not into what are commonly called conspiracy theories, right? These, these secret plots that are controlling the events of nations and of, of international significance. I, I kind of don't get into those too much. But I will tell you that the psalmist is rather clear. There is a grand international conspiracy afoot amongst the rulers of the world. There is a mutiny of rebellion that is taking place all throughout the world. It's happening, and it's happened since the time of the psalmist, and it goes back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. Mankind is rebellious. And as people accrue to themselves power, as they accrue control in leadership, they are more and more inclined to, to leverage that leadership against the restraint of the one who ultimately rules. The kings of the earth set themselves. They, they, they array themselves for battle. They conspire together. But at whom... Is this mutiny directed? At, at whom is their hostility directed? Notice again, verse 2, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against whom? His anointed. Now, in Bible times, kings were anointed, right? You remember this again and again throughout the history of Israel. You remember Samuel going to anoint Saul. You remember Samuel then finding a young man after God's own heart named David, who was, who was anointed while he was yet a youth, which then set off an entire uh, cadre of events where Saul wanted to kill David because his anointing was clear indication of his right to rule, his right to the throne. And so these rulers of the earth conspire together against the true king, the anointed one. But there's more to it, right? There's more to it than just that he is king because this Hebrew word is the word Messiah. This anointed one is also the Savior. And if you trace through the Old Testament and you observe the words of the prophet, you will see again and again that God has an anointed one who would come and who would save his people and would be the ultimate monarch. Now, the psalmist didn't know 
Messiah's name. But we know him to be, we know him to be Jesus. And so although the psalmist didn't perhaps know the full weight of what he was saying, he looked forward to this one who would be called Jesus, who was the one that all of the forces of the earth rebel against. And so you see now why this is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm about Jesus, although it predates his incarnation. Now, what do they say? What is, what is taking place in this conspiracy meeting? As the kings of the earth gather themselves together and they take counsel, they discuss, what are they saying? Verse 3, let us break. Let us break there. Now, it's plural, right? Because it refers back in verse 2 to both God and his appointee, Jesus. So it, that's why it's plural. Now, now, we, looking back from the New Testament, realize that God's appointee, Jesus, is one and the same with God. That's the Trinity. Jesus is fully God. But that's why you see it here in the plural in the Psalms. Let us break their bonds. God and his appointee, his anointed one. Let us break their bonds bands, their bonds in pieces, and cast away their cords from us. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, we will not be restrained. We will not be told what to do. Our highest value is our autonomy, our authority. It is the supremacy of the individual, and by the time you get to that position of leadership, no one tells me what to do. Does that sound like any culture you're familiar with? I will not be restrained. I will not be told what to do. No one tells me how to live my life. I'll make my own choices. This is the chorus of rebellion against the Almighty. It's sung by the rulers, and it's sung by the people in our day. Let us break their bonds asunder. We will not be restrained. John Newton, the converted slave trader and Anglican minister, most known for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. He said it this way, The kings of the earth are continually disturbing the world with their schemes of ambition. They expect to carry everything before them, and they seldom have any higher, view, every, any higher end in view than the gratification of their own passions. But in all they do, they are but servants of this great King and Lord and fulfill His purposes as the instruments He employs to inflict prescribed punishment upon transgressions. A Christian taking a survey of history, of human history, will see 
this illustrated over and over and over again. Nearly every cataclysm that was caused by the hand of man throughout human history can be traced to verses 2 and 3. We will not be restrained. We will not be told what to do. I will be ultimate. And it's led to global wars. It has led to genocide. It has led to horrific circumstances for peoples of the earth throughout history. And this kind of rebellion wreaks havoc on mankind and continues to do so even today. So kind of think about verses 1 through 3 in summary. As we see man's rebellion, we see the nations of the world led by their rulers warring, raging against God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this rebellion rages even today. Every day, the people of the earth, by and large, are in rebellion against God. How does Paul put it in Romans 1? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They push down the truth in unrighteousness. This, this rage, this rage of the nations is all around us. In fact, the, the current political polarization in our nation is evidence of the rage. Turn on any 24-hour news channel, right? Whether your favorite one is the fascist news channel or the socialist news channel, take your pick, right? Just turn it on and you will see the rage of the nations. In fact, the rage of the nations creates better ratings, more clicks, and more dollars. The sad thing is that Christians too often are allowed are allowing that rage to seep in to their lives and to their churches. And the reason for this is because our hopes are set in the wrong place. This psalm presents for us the reality that political structures are not our hope. In fact, they are the battleground of the gods. Now, it is certainly true that we should do what we can to demonstrate God's love and His justice. We should do good to our neighbor. As much as we have ability, we should even influence systems for the sake of good. But make no mistake, these human systems are not ultimate. And so our, as, as believers, our zeal must not be for policies. Our zeal must be for God. We mustn't confuse our judgments for God's judgments. And so just let me, let me encourage us, as we think about this text, to not obsess with redeeming a nation, but instead to be consumed with living as a redeemed people, 
a peculiar people, a holy nation set apart to serve the living and true God. One author said it this way, As God can protect His people under the greatest despotism, so the utmost civil liberty is no safety to them that are without the immediate protection of His almighty arm. I fear, he says, that Christians in this country have too great a confidence in political institutions rather than of the government of God. So before we're quick to assume that this is just an issue for other nations, let's just, let's just be reminded that America is plagued with this rebellion against God as well. Ultimately, it's not about right or left, it's about right or wrong. Ultimately, it's not about who's on the Republican team or the Democrat team. In fact, both teams habitually say, let us break his bonds asunder and cast away his cords from us. That's the theme of both major political parties, both oppose God and His rule. One party rebels against God in respect to human life as it supports the murder of children in the womb and rebellion against God's created order for human sexuality. The other party lauds and defends foolish and abusive speech and actions, glorifies sexual immorality and racism. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, set themselves against God, by and large. And so we see this rebellious clamoring, this, this resistance to God's governance in the first half of the psalm. But then scene two takes us from earth to heaven, where we see the reaction of God in verses 4 through 6. What is God's reaction to all of this? Do you, do you like um, Chuck Norris? I happen to like him. He seems like a pretty cool dude. You're heard, you've heard all the, the Chuck Norris facts, right? You, th those are pretty good. You know, the the fact that, that, that Chuck Norris once, um, once punched a horse with an uppercut to the jaw and all of his descendants are now called giraffes, right? That, that Superman owns a pair of Chuck Norris pajamas. Um, that death once had a near Chuck Norris experience. Right, these go on and on and on, right? You can sit all day and tell these. You ever, you ever watch a movie where, where there's Chuck Norris or someone else who's like this, this all-star fighter, and you know that he can take out all the bad guys, right? And you see the scene where, where they are getting ready to take on the bad guys, and the bad guys have no idea who Chuck Norris is. How can they not know? He's all over the place, right? But, but here they get, and they all get in their, in their stance, right? They're ready to fight, and there's like five or six of them. And it's only Chuck Norris and his buddy, right? So there's like, you know, two on six. And they all get in their fighting stance and they're ready to go. 
right? and they're gearing up, and, and he just, you know, the, the, the hero just looks at his buddy, and they just laugh, right? And we all know what's getting ready to happen, right? I mean, they're going to take these guys down, and it's going to be fun to watch these two guys beat up everybody. You know, I, I kind of think of that, that scene when I see the shift from verses 3 to 4. Right? The kings of the earth, man, they, they, they're ready to go. They're ready to fight. All right, let's go. Let's take this guy on. And God just laughs. He's like, are you guys serious here? God is the author of the universe. He controls all things. He can defeat the armies of the world with the flip of his wrist. And these kings, these rulers, these, these humans are arrogant enough to take a fighting stance. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. There's all this clamor. There's all this call to war. There's this rebellious insurrection forming up. And God just laughs. The Lord, it says in verse 4, continuing, shall hold them in derision. If you're using a New American Standard, the Lord scoffs at them. Verse 5, he shall speak to them in his wrath. He shall distress, or that could be translated terrify, in his deep displeasure. God conquers rebellion. And mankind's rebellion in no way thwarts the sovereign control of God. So I wonder this morning, as you see the clamor around you in the world, what is it that bothers you? What is it that, that troubles you? Some decades ago, it was the threat of nuclear war. More recently, it was Y2K. Remember that? <laughs> You young people don't. <laughs> more, more recently, it's terrorism, the threat of terrorism. Maybe you're troubled by, by bad leaders, and let's face it, we have some bad leaders. What troubles you? What clamor in the world do you look at and seems at first blush to be out of control? Do you realize that God still sits in the heavens? That God still rules? That none of it has escaped his notice? And even though it looks like a great clamor of war against the restraint of the ruler, it's really just as silly as a bunch of guys taking a fighting stance against the one that we all know can defeat them. And in verse 6, we see how God exercises his rule. He rules through his anointed ruler that we saw referred to in verse 2, right? Verse 6, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is the geographical seat of authority, the capital city of God's rule. And it houses the king that God has appointed. Now, in verses 7 through 9, which we won't get to this week, we will be more thoroughly introduced to this king. 
this one who rules. But we are briefly told here in verse 6 that God is, is using him as his emissary, as his ruler over the nations. This is a reminder that this anointed one is the ruler. God has not relinquished control. He is still the sovereign. He is still the ruler over this world. Second Chronicles, we see it this way. The Lord God of our fathers, are you not in heaven? Do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Paul in Ephesians 1 reminds us that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Daniel 4, this decision is by the decree of the watchers, the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. He gives it to whomever he will, and he sets it over the lowest of men. In Proverbs, we're reminded that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. We could go on and on and on with verses that remind us that God is the sovereign. He is in control. And I fear that sometimes Christians look at the circumstances around them. They look at the rulers that we have around us. They look at the things that are going poorly in our nation and in the world, and they, they wring their hands, they pull out their hair, they, they think, what are we ever going to do? It's almost as if we forget that God is still the ruler, and that he sets up and takes down rulers. There is no room amongst Christians for this kind of mass hysteria, this panic, that characterizes so many Christians whose hopes are set on this world. Observe, yes. Participate, yes. Do what you can to shape the events around you, indeed. But never, never succumb to the temptation to believe that it's all out of control. And I wonder... What hardship do we face? What difficult circumstance do we face? That we would do well to remind ourselves that doesn't escape God's notice. Can we look at the circumstances around us? Look as the early church did that we studied last week at even the, the threat of persecution and recognize God is still the ruler. He is still the sovereign. Do you know what dissonance is in music? You know, when, when two notes kind of clash up against each other and they don't sound right. But, but much of music is built on dissonance because it is the resolution of that dissonance that creates the, the satisfaction that we, that we hear when we reach that, that final moment of the music. There is, in the orchestra of the world, those who wish to create dissonance. But God, the ultimate composer and conductor, even weaves through his beautiful music the resolution of that dissonance for his own 
glory. And although the song may sound troubling at times, we know that the resolution is coming and it is in his hands. So this morning, how do you think about the rebellion in the world around you? Do we see it? Abortion, genocide, war. And we're rightly grieved with the trouble in the world. But let's be reminded this morning that it is not uncontrolled. The clamor of rebellious war is futile. It is foolish because an all-powerful God still sits enthroned as the sovereign of the universe. And I wonder this morning, in what ways do you and I rebel against God? In what ways do we, do we foolishly put up our dukes and say, no, this, this God is an area that you're, that you're not going to meddle in? I wonder, I wonder what areas of our life we say, well, well this is okay. I can get away with this. I, I know that this isn't pleasing to God. This is not what he's told me to do. But, and then I would ask lastly this morning, and this is really what we get into in the text next week, about our own submission to God. You see, the gospel is predicated on repentance and faith. That is to say, turning from my way to God's way. And I wonder this morning if there's anyone here who, who you've never submitted. You've never come to the point where it's really not about what I want. I am willing to be ruled. Or do you even this morning continue to say, I want my way? I'm not going to conform. I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to do things God's way. I will not repent of my sin. How foolish. How much the, the height of arrogance for us to say we should live life, God's, uh, uh, live life our way and not God's. And so the invitation this morning for all of us is to submit, to recognize that there is a sovereign in heaven who will bring glory to himself. May we not resist, but may we find our blessing in submitting to him. Man's rebellion does not thwart the control of God. Lord, we